Okay, so um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so this is um, the last, uh, my last question lecture of this this year, this academic year, um, and I'm going to take you on a a slight trip towards the future and discuss um, what I call existential risk. And I really mean risk to the earth, actually, and I'll be covering quite a few issues here. So what do I mean by existential risk? So this was nicely defined by an Oxford philosopher who write, defines it as follows. Existential risk is where an outcome would either annihilate Earth-originating intelligent life or permanently and drastically curtail its potential. So this is bad, right? The risks that we may be uh, facing. Um, much worse than we can imagine for Brexit, etc. Okay, so this is, this is long term. Okay, so um, let me begin with some examples. Um, and I'll be discussing these in a little more detail, but let me just show you the sorts of risks that are pretty serious here. So an asteroid um, hitting the Earth. Um, we're well aware that about 60 million years ago, there was a massive impact which destroyed who knows how many types of species, including the dinosaurs, and did incidentally clear, probably clear the way for Homo sapiens. Um, a nuclear holocaust. Um, there were worries from the first testing, even before the notion of chain reactions in um, nuclear physics, that these could just ignite a potential nuclear holocaust and destroy the Earth. The scientists worried about these things, that I will explain in a moment. Um, nanotechnology, um, sometimes referred to as the revenge of the grey goo. Uh, these are um, maybe misuse of nanobots, which could you know, destroy our entire biosphere and uh, not leave much behind for uh, us to uh, uh, survive. And of course, at the same time, this is a technology that's critical for um, much of our current way of life, actually, for commercial developments, etc. Artificial intelligence is another um, issue that I'll describe. Um, now, this is something that does depend on the computer programmer. And you can imagine that um, if these things are badly programmed, there could be, again, some future disaster arising. We haven't quite got there yet with misuse of Google, but that's the sort of thing that could happen in a much more dramatic uh, way as our computers become much more powerful in the future. Um, genetic engineering, um, another example of uh, the amazing um, power that we have now in biotechnology. Um, and this could go in a bad way too, maybe by, by accident, maybe through terrorist activity, whatever. I'll give you some examples. Um, here is maybe one of the most bizarre possibilities. Uh, if you think ahead to the future, we will have such powerful computers that the children in who knows millions of years will be playing their video games and simulating the past. And we might actually be in a computer simulation without knowing it. And that could be shut down. Someone could turn it off, and that would be a catastrophic end. And then, you know, all these are examples that um, people worry about. The, the last one, mostly philosophers rather than scientists. But um, that, that's, that's, and then something that we haven't even dreamt of yet, something unforeseen. 
could be a source of existential risk and uh, total or dramatic destruction. So let me begin um, with worries about um, the impact of a meteorite. And um, Stephen Hawking was very concerned about this. Um, he wrote, although the chance of a disaster to planet Earth in a given year may be quite low, it adds up over time and becomes a near certainty in the next 1,000 or 10,000 years. Okay, so I think he was a little pessimistic on that, but I'll tell you what I think the odds are. Um, so let's consider um, this. Um, here are examples of meteorite impacts. Um, Maybe uh, one of the most um, elegant ones some of you may have visited is in Arizona. Um, just 50,000 years ago, um, this is one kilometer across, media crater. Um, um, here is um, one from um, a million years ago or so in Canada, larger one. You know, the further back in time, the likelihood of a bigger event is more likely, etc. Uh, and this is one of the bits of um, meteorite found in this crater. Um, <clears throat> here is one from dated to have been um, a couple of billion years ago in South Africa, the Redefort Dome. And this is several hundred kilometers across. Uh, most of it's um, hard to see, um, but this is a satellite photograph. And so in an enormous um, area, um, um, imp impact of, a, of an asteroid, probably um, not that enormous actually, maybe less than a kilometre across, we, we imagine. Um, and, um, and so these impacts would release um, enormous clouds of dust. And um, with a big enough impact, um, we might expect something as bad as this. And this is roughly... Uh, a visualisation of what might have happened about 60 million years ago when there was an impact, most likely, that led to a huge cloud of smoke that covered most of the Earth. Um, sunlight was dramatically reduced. And this is thought to be um, one of the major reasons that there were mass extinctions, including um, um, that of the dinosaurs. Uh, this is just an artist's vision of uh, how dramatic this might be. So let's just think about what the odds are for this sort of thing to happen. Um, well, here is another um, worry that we have. Um, how do you, you want to figure out where these um, asteroids might be, uh, what the chances of finding one before it will hit the Earth and maybe diverting it. I mean, so the, there are clever ways you can imagine to divert them. One is if you find one, you could launch a missile at it and try it. All you've got to do if you find it far enough away is to divide, divert its course a little bit and it will miss, miss the Earth. And, but what's amazing is um, we're beginning to track debris that um, goes around the Earth. And so this is, um, you can see here, the uh, orbit of the Earth and... Um, and um, beyond Mars, and these are all orbits of debris that are being tracked. Now, these are human-initiated debris. They come from old satellites, thing, satellites that have begun to break up for whatever reason, collisions with other satellites, and there are many thousands of uh, bits of metal and plastic in orbit, um, and um, maybe um, up to 10 centimetres 
Um, there might be nearly a million of these things, and smaller ones, many millions. We don't know. We can't see them. We just speculate. Um, because, you know, when things grind together in a, in a collision, they will make many smaller things too. And these are potentially very dangerous things, because if you go... If you want to launch a spacecraft from the Earth to anywhere the, with humans inside, then the chances of running into one of these are non-trivial, and even something a few centimeters across, which will um, hit you at many thousands of miles an hour, um, could be very dangerous indeed for, for spacecraft. So when I start, that's why um, the space agencies track these things and um, try to limit a safe path. So the same instruments that do this tracking um, would also be able to look for asteroids um, far away. They would look much like one of these nearby bits of debris. And this is a proposed small telescope that... Um, well, um, looking for what are called NEOs, near-Earth objects. Um, so it's a smallish telescope, but with a huge field of view. And the idea is that it would be launched um, and just scan the sky again and again and again, looking for things that move slightly. Um, and this then would be an indication that something is coming towards us. If you catch it far enough away, it could be a significant asteroid that might potentially um, harm the Earth. So we haven't um, found, we haven't launched this thing yet, other, other devices are looking for them too. We've had one or two false alarms of asteroids which have come and had near misses with the Earth, but so far um, nothing much. And that's because these things are very unlikely. But we've only been looking for the past decade or two, so who knows what might happen in the next thousand years or the next million years. Okay, so let me try to give you a feeling for how likely this is that there could be um, a huge risk from a major impact, as happened some 60 million years ago, when we have actually traced off, off, the, um, off the coast of Mexico, off Yucatan, the area now under sea where there was this um, major asteroid impact, which then led to a huge cloud of smoke and pollution, which uh, cut off the sunlight, warmed up the, the Earth, etc., and um, did lead to major extinctions. Okay, um, so suppose, indeed, we... You know, we accept this. It's our best theory so far, 60 million years ago. And imagine this were to happen again. And, you know, the worst uh, possible, you know, conclusion is that one might lose, you know, a few billion people, right? Um, because of this, um, the many terrestrial fires or whatever explosions ignited by, by this huge impact around the globe, perhaps, okay? Maybe it would trigger volcanoes or other places. No, no one really knows what the consequence might be. But this is the most risky thing you can imagine happening. So let's suppose you lose 6 billion people on the average every 60 million years. That's a worst-case scenario. Well, that's roughly, if I've done my arithmetic right, about 100 per year. Okay, so on the average then, it's no worse than the probability of anyone dying in a plane crash, okay, commercial plane crash. So, um, and probably um, uh, the chances of dying in a, in a road accident, you know, of order are probably even much greater than that. Okay, um, crossing the road or whatever, or um, being hit by, you know, a driverless car or whatever is our future dangers might be, okay. Right, so, you know, um, so we shouldn't be too worried, but, if, but you know, the Earth you know, um, is billions of years old, so we can have a record of this, but, you know, our civilization is only really, in terms of post-industrial revolution, a couple of centuries old. And we have many thousands, many millions, even billions of years to go if we can keep our act together. 
And so bad things could happen in the future over a long enough time scale. One has to think about these things. Okay, so now, um, asteroids aside, let me turn to another worry that um, people are having. And so this is to do with artificial intelligence, which, as you know, is um, a major component of um, Facebook, for example, um, and, um, uh, and all, all, all of our major Internet activities developing very rapidly. And, um, you know, computers are just becoming more and more powerful. We can do more and more with this. Um, and again, let me um, quote Stephen Hawking, the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. And I'll try to explain what he meant by that. Um, so this is, um, and this is the idea that, you know, as computers become more and more powerful in the future, um, either by bad programming or possibly uh, there could be some, some random error that could lead to computers developing with malicious intent, right? Um, and this is, this is a, a worry for artificial intelligence. So how far have we gotten? Well, right now, um, the most complex game that we probably have is Go. And um, Google's um, artificial intelligence um, has just, on a computer, has just beaten the world's best Go player. And so there are more moves in Go, as I write, than atoms in the universe. It's truly a complicated game. And as you know, the idea is to surround your enemy, black surrounding white, etc. Um, and, um, and so, well, um, uh, we've already lost, lost the best chess players to the target intelligence. Now it's, the, it's, it's Go. So, and so what about the future? Um, well, you know, again, the computer age is just not very advanced, right, compared to what it will be in the future. You know, we have some um, potential robot here who is not only vastly more physically powerful, but vastly more intelligent than our human. And let's hope that, um, you know, it's happy to play games and, and be uh, friendly. Okay. Um, Okay, so how old is the computer age? Well, the, these are the two pioneers of the modern computer age. Um, uh, Ada Lovelace was the, the daughter of Byron, um, who did the first programming for computers, and uh, Charles Babbage, a Cambridge mathematician, who built the first computing devices, um, analog computers. Um, and um, between them, so they, they launched in the 19th century the, um, the modern computers, okay? And now computers are becoming more powerful. So what is, the, what is the future for computing? Well, what you have to think about now is all, what I just showed you was from two centuries, over two centuries, okay? That's our history. But the Earth is about 4.6 billion years old. And there are other stars out there, and that's the age of the sun as well, right? Everything happened at that time. Um, and that's when the solar system began, okay? Now, there are other stars which are billions of years older than our sun. We know that we can date them by, the, by taking their spectra, by examining their light. And we also know that um, planets like the Earth are truly numerous. We call them exoplanets, and we've begun to find thousands of them around nearby stars. And for these exoplanets, we have no idea if life is on them or not. It's very, very hard to, to even look at the moment with technology for life tracers 
such as oxygen in the atmosphere and other activities. Pollution in the atmosphere, that'd be a great thing to look for, right? Um, industrial pollution, things like that. So we haven't even got to that point yet, but those are future activities we'll be thinking of, and maybe even imaging these things eventually with big enough telescopes. But that's all for the future. But what is clear already is that, um, while we have no idea what the chances of life might be, many of these exoplanets, twins of the Earth, if you like, have a huge head start on the Earth. They would have been formed and having the same conditions as the early Earth had, but, you know, a billion years ahead of us. And if life were maybe some random occurrences, you know, that there are, who knows, there are billions of stars in the universe uh, uh, that we can uh, infer from, from our biggest telescopes, actually billions of billions of stars. And so even if a few of these had life on their exoplanets, um, that life could be so far advanced that it might have... It just, we can't begin to imagine how powerful that might be. And so we just don't know. The potential is totally unknown. So it's a... Now, we hope that this life elsewhere, if indeed it exists, it seems likely it should somewhere, that it basically is benign. It, it doesn't have any... Um, strong, you know, ambitions against uh, destroying uh, more primitive forms of life, as did happen in our recent history on the Earth. I'll come to that in a second. But, um, you know, who knows? So one has to keep an open mind on this. I hope it's more positive than negative. There are scientists among my colleagues who say you should not be trying to communicate... There's a whole program called Search for Digital Intelligence which tries to send out radio signals and listen to radio signals coming from planets that are not too far away. You remember, we've been broadcasting radio signals since, you know, radio, if you like, TV shows like Lucy or whatever, since the 1940s, and these shows move out at the speed of light from us, and so if you have planets that are within 100 light years of us, they'd be receiving... Uh, you know, our early TV transmissions from a century ago. Who knows what opinion that would give them about the Earth, right? <laughs> but anyway, whatever, that's what they'd be seeing. And, and so we can't avoid that. Um, and, and there are, you know, and then one can imagine trying to send signals or listen into them. And, and some scientists say, well, it's dangerous to draw too much attention to yourself um, because who knows what they, you know, what could come of that. Unpredictable. It, there's a debate that goes on. And so why do I think that um, the rise of future computing is so um, is unlimited, basically, uh, compared to what we have these amazingly intelligent, artificial intelligence systems now, but in the future it's hard to believe. So this shows you the rise of computing power since the early days, and um, it just doubles by a factor of two um, every, um, every year or so, basically, and that means exponential growth. So you can see um, these are in um, the early analog computers, right? Um, this was Babbage's analytical engine. Um, and, um, and, and now we've increased by... Um, and so by factors, this is a minus, a minus sign in front of that. Here's a plus sign. So we've gone up by many, many orders of magnitude, okay? And so it's what we call exponential growth. And so here we are basically where we'll be very soon. Um, IBM, now the world's most powerful computers in China. This is it. Um, just begun op operating or about to operate this year. It has, um, it can do, um, it has a power of what we call one exaflop. It's more powerful than any American computer or European computer by a significant factor. 
although other countries are rushing to catch up, of course, and they can do this enormous number of operations every second. And so that's where we are. But there's no obvious limit to this because we may well have um, be coming towards near the end of what we can build in terms of simple... Um, you know, uh, chips, silicon chips, but there are whole new technologies coming in um, which um, rely on, um, you know, you have numbers of zero and one which you use to program computers and, and de devise programs, but in principle, if you can go to what is quantum computing, you can go to a whole new area where these numbers are uh, virtual, they're unlimited in, in, in the number of combinations you can have, and so one can as we be, we're beginning to develop or study this technology, we have, we're far from mastering it now, but it seems clear that in the next decade or, f or whatever, uh, we'll, we should be there with um, future growth um, totally um, uh, unclear. What, what would ever limit it? Okay, and so um, uh, this is the view of a pessimist. Um, uh, this is an interesting book to read, who says that artificial intelligence will go beyond the capacity of the human brain. Now, it's already there beyond the ability to play Go, but this is now something a little more advanced than just playing games. Um, it will have um, consciousness or whatever, um, and that will be within, um, within a decade or so. And, and at that point, we would have to start worrying about whether humanity would be replaced, it would be natural evolution, for it possibly to be replaced by, by computers. So um, there'll be a significant change in our computing ability when computers overpass the human brain in a order of decade. So, so Kurzweil claims. Okay. Um, <clears throat> So what about consciousness? Well, we often think that um, the one thing a computer cannot be is conscious, right? Um, you know, a computer cannot write poetry, can't write Shakespeare or whatever. I mean, uh, it doesn't quite have the... It can't fall in love with another computer, but are we so sure of that, right? Um, so as you... Are, I think the answer is we're in unknown territory here. So as you increase, you know, the power of simulating things in computers. You know, you start some very crude representations of, of humans and then you get more and more sophisticated. And then at, at, at the end, you know, maybe you have something that really is indistinguishable from a human. We have no idea. There's a certain number of synapses, billions that go in our brains. And when you can overcome that with computers, then, um, you know, those random combinations may... Um, a human being as it might be indistinguishable. Okay. Um, Okay, um, so, and then you worry about whether, you know, again, because of bad programming or something or just a random errors creeping in, there could be some malicious intent that might evolve. That's what Kurzweil worries about in those computers. Kurzweil worries about, and that would then um, lead to a disaster, an exponential risk for, for to humanity. And we've, you know, seen the glimmerings of the possible risks already with um, the misuse of artificial intelligence um, in applications, you know, already on the internet. Um, and so this is just presumably the tiniest taste of what is to come in the future, unless we begin to develop regulations that can, you know, control this uh, uh, to a great extent that we have today. And I'm sure that will happen. Okay, so here now, let me move on to threats, existential threats that... Um, won't necessarily be completely fatal for humanity, but would, you know, have a pretty big impact anyway. And so um, you can think of these as quasi-existential threats because, um, the, the, you know, if they destroy some large fraction of the people on the Earth, you know, we'd survive 
pretty robust species, but these are bad things that we don't want to happen. So let me just mention some of those. So one of them is just the use of nuclear wep weapons, of course, nuclear war. Um, you know, some newspapers are now telling us to start worrying about this again um, as, as the Cold War heats up again. But, you know, who knows? Um, we've been through this before. Um, maybe we'll, we'll all survive. There's de degradation of the environment. It could be so bad that, um, again, um, it may be very difficult for, um, uh, for our current way of life to survive. That might be many more deaths, etc. Disease, mass diseases. Um, these are very hard to control. New things can arise, random genetic mutations, and they can cause major events that are threats to humanity. And just the, the whole global warming may make life on the Earth very difficult. We could become, in principle, if the greenhouse effect develops more uh, because of um, pollution um, trapping the, 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 the heat um, in, the, in, the uh, in the atmosphere, that, that could lead to... Um, you know, our being more or less like living on the surface of Venus, which should not be a very pleasant place. Okay, um, so we've known about these dangers for quite a while. So it's interesting um, to look at what we uh, historically, to look at what happened around the, the time of World War II when the first atom bombs were being tested and used. Um, this, what were the scientists think, thinking? Well, the scientists who developed the atom bombs dropped on Japan, tried to envision the kind of nuclear event that could lead to destruction of not just cities, but the entire world. This was in 19, the 1940s, they worried about this. The verdict that scientists at the Los Alamos lab and test site reached in 1945 found that it would require only a neighborhood of 10 to 100 super bombs to put the human race in peril. And what they meant by a super bomb was what later became to be called the hydrogen bomb something roughly a thousand times more powerful than um, the bombs dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay, um, 10 to 100. Well, we didn't listen to that too carefully, and there have been a number of nuclear tests, atmospheric tests carried out. Unfortunately, not too many. Um, so here are the two uh, record holders for nuclear tests um, in terms of um, uh, megaton power. Remember, the um, Hiroshima event was aboard 20,000 tons, 20 kilotons. These are thousands of times more powerful, these hydrogen bombs. Um, this was on the Bikini Atoll, a U.S. attempt, and then the Russians outdid the, um, the U.S. with what they called the, the Tsar H-bomb, which had a... 60 megatons, and that was in 1961. Okay, so we've learned our lesson from that, and that all led, within a couple of years, to an international treaty banning atmospheric testing. And so it's interesting to look around now and look at the landscape. Um, so the interesting thing is, is that not only um, are, are there areas of the world devastated by nuclear testing, but interesting enough, it's also just burning coal uh, that leads to acid rain that destroys enormous areas that has almost as devastating an effect on, on our on env environment. So here are a couple of uh, quotations. In the Adirondacks in, in northern New York State, the acid rain includes a mixture of sulfuric and nitric acids from the sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides pouring from the smokestacks of power plants smelters, factories, and vehicle exhausts. Over 200 lakes are dead, their aquatic life gone or dwindling. And it's not just the US, in Scandinavia, acid rain has destroyed 15,000 lakes in recent years. Inevitably, the death of a lake affects other wildlife as well. 
fish-eating ducks, loons, otter, mink, and even birds begin to leave because their food and shelter have been destroyed on the ground. Acid rain leaches essential nutrients from the soil, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. It prevents seeds from germinating, scars leaves. Okay, and then, um, you know, turning to Russia, and this was in the vicinity where they were doing nuclear testing and, and nuclear uh, uh, experiments, about another eyewitness account, about 1,000 kilometers from Sverdlovsk, a highway sign warned drivers not to stop for the next 20 or 30 kilometers to drive through at maximum speed. On both sides of the road, as far as one could see, the land was dead. No villages, no towns, only the chimneys of destroyed houses, no cultivated fields or pastures, no herds, no people, nothing. What I saw personally was a large area in the vicinity of Zverdlovsk, no less than 100 to 150 square kilometers and probably much more, in which any normal human activity was forbidden. People were evacuated and villages raised, evidently to prevent inhabitants from returning. There was no agriculture or livestock raising, fishing and hunting were forbidden. So, um, fortunately, these areas are still limited. Um, but, you know, one has to worry. Um, so now let me go from um, nuclear and environmental concerns to... Um, uh, issues of um, diseases, mass diseases. And so again, uh, there's been an interesting history of this over the past um, couple of thousand years, um, even a few hundred years. Um, you can see how the, the plague, um, the Black Death um, in London, um, uh, and th indeed throughout Europe actually, at different times, um, had catastrophic effects on the population, right? Um, so this, this um, ha happened in the uh, 14th century, um, the population going down dramatically by 25%. Um, and then um, in the 16th century, there was another episode, um, not quite as dramatic, but, you know, many millions of deaths. So these are things that um, one would um, uh, love to try to understand better. And given that these have happened within the past, you know, couple of hundred years, who is to say what might happen on a timescale that's much, much longer um, as new mutations of diseases develop? Um, here's another example of how um, just indigenous people not in contact um, with um, more developed areas where um, there was more immunity disease were affected. This is the indigenous peoples in um, Southern America, in Mexico, in this example. And so you can see um, just smallpox alone um, led to vast, num enormous population decreases. Um, in, in fact, um, you know, many millions of deaths, and these were substantial numbers of the pop fractions of the population, right, just going down sort of 90% or as much as 90% being affected of the indigenous population. So, you know, th these are risks for the future. These things could could occur again. We have to think about how to control them. And so the worry about their concerning again is that, um, you know, we, we're beginning to understand how to make these genes more. I'll come to that again in a second. And wants to worry a bit about genetic te technology leading, not, you know, inadvertently leading to escape of viruses, whatever that could be bad. Um, okay, what about um, another environmental problem that is sea rise, okay, from global warming? So you can see um, uh, in, the, in, in the South Antarctic region, um, a huge um, ice continent that's gradually melting away, okay? And so this is the, the melting of the, uh, the ice, and that is such a hu huge area that in 
is already beginning to melt, this will lead to significant rise of sea. And so these are projections. And so you can see the worst case and the optimistic case. And so let me just, and this is in centimeters. So we're talking about, you know, 12 possible, a 12 kilometer, um, a 12 meter, a 12 meter rise in sea level over, cut off here, this is over 200 years, okay? Um, and that's huge. So if, if you have a 12 meter rise, you know, London will be mostly flooded, okay? Um, yeah, we'll, have, we have, we'll have a few skyscrapers to live in, of course, but that, you know, that, that may be good. But um, so when I start, and if, and if you're optimistic, then instead of, you know, tens of kilometers, tens of meters, it's um, five meters still, but still that's a lot as well. So, okay. Um, right. And, and if, um, so some people argue again, Stephen Hawking again, um, we're close to the tipping point where global warming becomes irreversible. To become like Venus with a temperature of 250 degrees and raining sulfuric acid. Um, so this is uh, an example uh, just of, uh, on, on the Earth actually of what, you know, typical areas might be like baked by the sun. And of course what's happening is that pollution basically in the atmosphere is, you know, stopping the sunlight which, in, which turns infrared light heat on the ground from leaving and things just heat up as in a greenhouse. So that's the, um, that's the worry and uh, we may be getting closer to a rapid increase. That Once this begins, there could be a runaway effect, which is what Hawking worries about. Okay, um, and then let's go back to um, diseases and things. And so, you know, I showed you the natural cases of outbreaks, which we have to somehow learn how to control in the future. Um, um, well, I'm sure we will as our technology gets better, but already there are issues that are worrying some people. And so one can lump this under the name of genetic terrorism. Um, so the idea is that um, one can now begin to synthesize in the laboratory some very nasty viruses. Okay, and so, um, and um, these are now published in the open literature. Um, and so this particular article worries about whether research is crossing a red line in the field of biosecurity. It's put out by um, the, 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 a US agency. But, you know, it's a sort of in indication that one has to be a little bit careful because if technology falls into the wrong hands, then it could lead to, again, major, major outbreaks that will be very hard to control. Okay, or there's the other possibility of having an accident, right? So, in, again, in these high-security labs that are designing these things and controlling them and seeking remedies against them, that's very important to do, uh, there could be accidents and that could lead to, um, you know, escape of viruses. So um, one has to, um, you know, these things will almost never happen, but the future's a long time and even though the risks are incredibly small today, one has to worry about what could happen in the future and control these things. So basically, um, the problem in all this is that the Earth is a very, very fragile place, right? And um, um, as Carl Sagan said, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have of some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. So that's the Earth as seen um, from Apollo, and this is the pale blue dot um, as seen from six billion kilometers away by the Voyager spacecraft. That's all we are. And if you get further away, you'll see nothing at all, of course. Um, so that's the Earth as seen from far away. Okay, um, let me now turn to physics, okay? Um, I'm a physicist and I want to describe to you a danger uh, that physicists 
have been accused of raising, okay? Um, so they've built this machine, um, 27 kilometers uh, in circumference, um, a tunnel under the ground where you have beams of high energy particles being sort of a magnet in opposite directions. They collide with each other at vast energies. Um, and the idea is to study new physics. Okay, so that's been uh, around, that was built a decade or so ago. And um, there was a worry, and this is an example of one of the collisions inside this one of the big detectors. And so in this collision of particles, they produce all sorts of debris. And there was a theory um, um, before, in existence before they built the collider that said, well, maybe um, it's possible I could make tiny black holes in these very energetic collisions. And this is one of the theories um, popular, at, still popular at that time, but still popular, in which you envisage um, that we live not just in a three-dimensional world, but there's, there are higher dimensions too, but right now they've all just compressed down to something very tiny, unmeasurable, uh, but, and in those tiny dimensions there, could be, there would be black holes, and it, but at very high energy you can break these things open. So suddenly out of almost nothing but fed by high energy you can make tiny black holes. And so this was taken seriously enough, so there was a, there was a, you know, a law case um, uh, and um, against this doomsday accident, if you made a black hole, that could be really catastrophic in principle in your laboratory, and it went to court, and, um, and it was dismissed by the judge, and then they allowed the, um, the Large Hadron Collider to be built. Um, okay, um, and they, you know, the, the people who filed the lawsuit worried that this might threaten the Earth. Well, we believe that's not true. Um, and so this is why. Um, it's certainly true that you can make these tiny black holes. But if you go through the energetics of how big these black holes are, they, they're roughly um, constrained by the energy you, pu you put into your beams of particles. And that means a mass um, which is really, really tiny. Um, so in grams, it's um, much, much less than a trillionth of a gram. Okay, and so fortunately, um, these evaporate. So again, this is one of Stephen Hawking's major contributions to physics. He predicted um, that um, what can happen um, is that these things we call the mini black holes would just disappear. They just couldn't, they were just so small that they would be intrinsically so hot, basically, because their surface is so curved, curvature means power of gravity in Einstein's language, that they would just radiate particles like crazy. And the way it works, um, we call this Hawking radiation, is that the, the, the particles you know, split up in space into pairs. One particle out, out of nothing, that vacuum, it happens in the vacuum, we call them fluctuations. Some fall in, some come out, and the ones that come out, if they go to infinity, that's evaporation. So basically that's how they work, and Hawking showed this happened so quickly that this couldn't possibly be a danger to humanity. So, of course, that was a theoretical expectation, but, you know, theory is never quite enough uh, to convince a judge in a lawsuit, and so there were two other arguments which were equally important in the lawsuit, I think. And one was that we've been bombarded on the Earth by cosmic rays from space um, throughout the existence of the Earth. And these cosmic ray particles, some of them are at much, much higher energies coming in than ever we could get to in the Large Hadron Collider. And so these particles then coming from outer space, um, from distant explosions, distant galaxies, um, hit the Earth, hit at the atmosphere and collide 
and lo and behold, as far as we know, no one has ever seen a mini black hole being produced. And, um, and that, so that's another example. And the final argument, which is that, again, in physics, we, we have to demonstrate the, what the risk might be. Risk assessment is what the lawsuit was about. And so the risk was that we can calculate that if, this, if they ever did succeed in getting past these other two barriers and making a tiny, tiny black hole in this collider, then true, it would not swallow up the Earth. It would just accrete so slowly, just by physics, that it couldn't possibly be a risk. And it might fall out the other side of the Earth and go off wherever, because it's so dense, but it just would not be a risk to the Earth. So all of those arguments meant that, you know, fine, we could go ahead and do these experiments on the Earth. Okay. Um, so now let's talk about another way to, um, to avoid this risk issue, okay, escape. Let's imagine that we go to Mars, you know, build a colony on Mars or the moon, okay? And so here is the, one of the problems with this. Space is full of debris, okay? And so here are examples of the debris uh, surrounding the Earth, just bits of old rockets and things, okay? And this is another simulation of all the debris that's being tracked. Many thousands of bits of metal moving at 18,000 miles an hour relative to a spacecraft going through them. Um, this, is, this is pretty dangerous. You have to somehow, uh, you know, pilot very carefully to avoid collisions with this debris. So that's sort of a, um, one has to get over these dangers. Um, then there are other issues if you want to go to Mars. Um, here is another one. It turns out that we are just beginning to understand the medical risks of a long voyage in space. So this applied not to people spending one year on a spacecraft to Mars, nine months, whatever it takes, but just going around the Earth on the International Space Station, you know, not very far away, in, in very low gravity. And they were found, finally we've done detailed medical studies of, of them, it's, it takes time to follow them, um, the astronauts that is, uh, and apologies, um, and they're five times more likely to die from heart disease. And this is from relatively, um, you know, um, nearby ventures in space. And we have no idea really what the risks might be in, um, in getting after a long journey to Mars. Whether, in fact, when you got to Mars, you'll be, a human will be in any state to um, basically uh, survive for very long. We have no idea. All of that's uh, a study of... So maybe going to the moon is a better way to escape, OK? It's closer. It's a much shorter journey to the moon. Uh, you know, it's instead of, um, you know, whatever, hundreds of millions of miles to Mars, it's just a quarter of a million miles to the moon. So it, it's a short journey. And so the moon is actually a very interesting place that's being dis discussed now um, as a future base. Um, and again, if things go bad on the Earth, you want bases somewhere else. And you could then go on elsewhere from the moon, maybe. So on the moon, the good news is this. There are deep craters on the moon, lots of ice in, apparently. So ice is great because um, with ice, you can break it up. You can um, get hydrogen for rocket fuel. You've got water, uh, oxygen to breathe. You've got water to... Um, uh, to fabricate bricks and things. Uh, again, with moon dust, you can do construction on the moon. Um, it turns out that some of these craters on the moon, very dark in the inside, full of water and ice, have high rims, always in the sun. Um, I'll show you a picture in a second. So great for solar power. Um, you also have um, helium-3, a nice type, rare isotope of helium, which is... Um, uh, un doesn't exist naturally on the Earth, but it's abundant on the Moon because the Moon's been bombarded with cosmic rays from the Sun for billions of years, and it's made by cosmic ray impacts on the surface of the Moon. And that's great for clean nuclear fuel, thermonuclear fuel. 
It's thought to be one of the major things we need, and then that would help a lot. Lots of rare elements from the bombardment of the moon over the years. Huge commercial advantages to go there. And finally, you could even, with the water, do farming on the moon, hydroponic farms. You don't need Earth, actually, just, just some atmosphere and, uh, and water, basically. And so all these things are being studied to go to the moon. And so when we get there, this is what we might find. So first of all, um, a good place to go would be to one of the two poles of the moon, because that's where the climate is not too extreme, because um, you know it's like being almost in a permanent twilight zone. Um, so near the south pole, there, there are some uh, huge craters um, that are perpetually dark. They're always in shade, and um, they're thought to be full of ice, um, and they're surrounded by, by these high rims. And then and near the North Pole, it's interesting, not only there, there are fewer craters, but what they found are these boreholes, um, which are thought to lead to much larger cavities inside, underneath, basically excavated by lava flows, past lava flows. So first of all, here's a close-up of, um, of the Shackleton crater. And so this is four kilometers deep, the enormous rims, 21 kilometers wide, um, it's been called the, the place of eternal darkness. It's always in shadow. And, but around it are these rims where there's sunlight throughout the year. So you could put up solar powers here, solar towers here, get lots of you know, power that you need and build things away from the extremes of, uh, of the extreme heat and the extreme cold, even build telescopes. Um, and then on the North Pole, you can... Um, it, it's, it's thought, conjecture, it's likely, is that um, there'll be um, enormous possibilities for, for using lava tubes. So I'll show that in a second. So this is what ESA, the European Space Agency, is planning for about 2040. They want to have a base on the moon. Um, and um, this is obviously a, an artist drawing, but they will do local construction and they will um, have hotels on the moon and um, have business activities on the moon. Um, they might even do some astronomy. That's to be seen. And then the lava tubes, near, near, and that's near the South Pole. It's a good place to go. And then here is what could happen in these lava tubes. So we think that these are just like skylights, okay, and that inside there's a huge area, and you can't quite see the bottom of this, but you can sit the, I mean, the entire... Uh, the city of London would basically fit about this area of this, and so these are thought to be, um, you know, thousand, uh, th th very high. This is this is the scale of thousand meters. That so these are um, many kilometers across, and this is the sort of thing that you could build inside the um, inside one of these lava tubes. You could build basically the equivalent of cities in these lava tubes. Um, uh, and you'll be covered from dust or other events coming from the sky, whatever. It will be easy, presumably, to to to, um, to do construction there. One thinks so, or, or to be explored in the future, in the next decades. But that might be another good place to go. Okay. So um, finally, uh, another possibility, if you want to survive all this, is to try to become immortal. Okay. So this isn't. You might think this is crazy, but again, I have colleagues who take this very seriously. So um, including. Um, uh, one of my, Nick Bostrom, we mentioned at the beginning, uh, a president at Oxford. So basically, um, they have this, there's a society in Boston that offers to freeze you after death and um, preserve you um, for some transhuman future um, in who knows how many centuries so you can be revived. And if you pay them, I think it's, you can take out an insurance policy for this, roughly 100,000 
pounds a year or something, you can get your whole body preserved, and there's a cut rate if you want just your head preserved. And so that, that is what my Oxford colleagues, some of them uh, went for, okay. And this is, this is where you're, you, you'll be. You'll be bits of you or your entire you will be placed in one of these, and hopefully the, the power won't be switched off. And uh, you know. <laughs> So that's one way, another way to go maybe, okay. So now let me um, go to the very far future, okay? So the universe will get darker and darker um, if we can survive all these risks, okay? Who knows, okay? So maybe in 100 billion years we'll see no more stars or very few stars because all the galaxies will be accelerating from us. That's what we've learned from what we call dark energy in the universe. And the Milky Way, all the stars, like the sun, will have died out by then. We'll have things called white dwarfs, the remnants of things like the sun, neutron stars, black holes, maybe lots of planets. That's interesting. Okay, so this is the future of the universe. Um, this is what we can see today, roughly 15 billion light years or so. But as everything else moves away from us because it's accelerating, this is what we'll see in 140 billion years. Just the, our own galaxy, the Milky Way, that's it. Because we're being held together, we're not accelerating. Bits of that are not accelerating, but all the rest is moving away. So we're just, the night sky will look different in 140 billion years. But that's not fatal. But what else? Let's imagine there'll still be stars, there'll be dead stars, there'll be lots of planets, so life could go on. So the ultimate is that in a trillion, trillion, trillion years, our current theory says protons will decay. Okay, so that's bad news. Um, and so we're, we're looking for protons decaying. And so the idea, you can't possibly have an experiment which waits that long, but if you have enough protons in one place in this enormous tank of water with of order 50,000 tons of purified water, you can wait for the occasional random decay, okay? And that should occur. And so far, they've set a limit, a lower bound, on, on the decay time of, of this, which is uh, maybe a factor of 100 less than the absolute longest it could be according to our current standard of physics. So we're building bigger experiments to look for events like this to do better than that. Okay. And a proton, this is the fate of a proton, um, so it, it, it will decay eventually into mesons and, and gamma rays, and that's what they look for in those experiments, mesons, um, but also it'll give you electrons, and electrons are particles that are forever. So we think that's, that's so that, they'll be left behind. Okay, so now let's imagine the really distant future, the protons have all gone, the electrons are left, so there is something in the universe. Um, so does this, can this allow any form of life to occur? Well, here is an interesting development in, in our thinking. Um, so in the quantum theory, um, there are all sorts of random fluctuations. There's something called Heisenberg's principle, which is you could never pinpoint exactly, there's intrinsic uncertainty, you know exactly where a particle is. And so when you get to within the limits of that particle scale, things can come and go that you'd never see. And we call those quantum fluctuations. So things could pop out of nothing and go away for the tiniest fraction of a time, and you'd never know it, and that's consistent with the law of physics. In fact, it's even predicted by the laws of physics because we believe there should be these generic fluctuations. So um, Boltzmann, um, who didn't know much at all about the quantum theory, was worried about the future of the universe and the rise of chaos in the universe. Um, entropy is what he called it. Chaos just keeps on increasing. And this would lead to what he called the heat death of the universe. In fact, um, uh, it was, he invented the second law of thermodynamics that predicts this. And he event, actually, he, it's worried him so much that he committed suicide, in fact. But anyway, um, quantum gravity is our modern solution to this. Um, and um, what this theory says is that there are fluctuations out there. And, and, you know, they're pretty rare, but what is the most likely one? The most likely one is just our 
basically our brains, our perception. And so he, so these guys, and it's a general question in quantum gravity, problem actually, is that things that we now call Boltzmann brains would be the most, complete with all our memories, would arise spontaneously and disappear. And this is the most likely form of, um, of life when there's um, chaos everywhere um, and um, basically nothing, nothing is left. Okay, so they just come and go. And so the universe, according to this picture of Boltzmann brains, um, endorsed strongly by some of my colleagues in, in the gravity community, would look like this. Here's a brain in the middle of space. It just comes and goes. Um, and that, in some sense, would be uh, what might await humanity in who knows how many millions of years' time. So my final thought for you is this, that um, can the universe live forever? Okay, so... Um, Indeed, there are theories out there which say it could. So we call these the bouncing universe theories. And it goes back a long time, but it, it's, they've begun to be in fashion again because you know, we don't really like the Big Bang beginning. It's sort of a singularity. It's not a good thing. nothing we really understand well. And so is there an alternative? So here's an alternative. The universe began from some infinitely large, almost infinitely large state, and it contracted and reached you know, a finite but very small size, and then began to expand again. So instead of having the Big Bang to a, to a very dense point, we have expand, contraction to a, a finite point, the expansion, here we are, okay. Um, and, and clumps form and make galaxies. All the usual stuff happens out here, and just the beginning was different. So this universe um, could have had no beginning, could, could have expanded from as large as you like, and in principle, it could keep on doing this again and again, so it could also last forever. So that's, that's the most maybe satisfying form of the universe. So, okay, so that's, that's it for cosmology. Let me just end with one final point. Okay, so here's a quotation from uh, Martin Rees. Spaceship Earth is hurtling through space. Its passengers are anxious and fractious. Their life support system is vulnerable to disruption and breakdowns, but there is too little planning, too little horizon scanning, too little awareness of long-term risks. And I'll end by showing you one of the immediate risks we can do something about. We are doing This is space garbage. Okay, so the, this is all the stuff we have in space around the Earth. Um, there are bits of um, stages of rockets and um, fragments of satellites that are broken up and, um, and all this stuff. And you can see um, over the years the numbers have been going up and up and up. And we have many thousands now. Um, okay. Um, and so you might say that Let's, we should immediately try to clean up the garbage in space. That would be a, a great thing to do. And indeed, there are experiments um, launched of this. One was launched on Monday, um, a UK experiment, actually, um, which uh, is a trial uh, sort of thing. It's going to have various nets and things to pick up garbage. And there are uh, grappling uh, projects in mind, too, to, to pick up bits of old satellites and then... Um, and then bring them back to some safe place and get them out of, out of the way. So, you know, cleaning up the garbage, cleaning up the rubbish in space is, is an immediate project that we might want to think about. But um, that'll keep us busy and maybe distract us from these very long-term risks I've talked about for the far future. So thank you. Thank you.